This is Mark Rushduni, Easy Chair number 419. I'm sorry my father couldn't be here tonight, but what we are losing in quality, we decided to make up in quantity. We have quite a group here for discussion. We have Andrew Sandlin, Walter Lindsay, Susan Burns, and we have an out-of-town guest, Ingrid Dahl from Minnesota. And our special guests are Peter Hammond and Miriam Kane from Frontline Fellowship. Peter is in his annual uh, U.S. tour right now. Those of you who are readers of the Calcedon Report are very familiar with Peter's work. He's, there are several aspects to his work, He's, and we want to talk about two of those areas tonight that we think are very important. One is his missions work. As you know, the church in English-speaking Africa is in many cases very oppressed. You've read about that in the Chalcedon Report, especially in Sudan. There was a Chalcedon team last year in Zaire. We'd also like to talk in our second session on the Reformation that Peter would like to see in South Africa. Missions work is only a first step to Reconstructionists. You must give the gospel, but the gospel involves far more uh, than the, what is sometimes called the simple or pure gospel. It involves the whole counsel of God, and Peter is concerned with both aspects of the ministry. Peter, as a beginning, why don't you tell us about the areas of Africa that you're directly involved with in missions work? Thank you, Mark. It's really great to be here on this. And our work in Frontline Fellowship started about 17 years ago uh, with working into the communist countries of Mozambique and Angola, seeking to help the persecuted churches working uh, in the war-torn uh, conflict areas there to um, evangelize people on both sides of the different conflicts. So um, that's where we started, Mozambique and Angola, Portuguese-speaking, communist-controlled, war-torn countries where the church was persecuted and where missionaries were banned and Bibles were forbidden. Uh, so Bible smuggling, evangelism, uh, chaplaincy work even amongst the Christian uh, and anti-communist forces, UNITA in Angola, Renama in Mozambique, uh, we were uh, doing chaplaincy work, evangelizing and ministering amongst them, um, using everything from literature evangelism uh, through to um, teaching and film evangelism, gospel records, Bible distribution. And soon we got into prison ministry because we got arrested uh, for doing this work. Uh, our work has expanded since then uh, to the Muslim North. Uh, now my main personal focus is Sudan, the largest country in Africa in the grip of the longest war of the century um, between the Muslim Arab North and the Christian Black South. Uh, we've also worked in some animist or witchcraft dominated areas of Africa like Rwanda. And uh, um, one of the areas where, where we've seen the most dramatic change is of course Zambia, which was a communist controlled country which now has a Christian uh, president who has committed the country to be a, a Christian republic, and um, so we're ministering even there. So we're going everywhere from the A to Z, from Angola to Zambia. Peter, your organization is called Frontline Fellowship, and I think that's a fairly accurate description. Um, why is it called Frontline? And uh, tell me about the complexion of your of your team. I believe most of them are former military personnel, or at least it began that way. So talk yes, about this idea of sure. your ministry to the front line. What does that mean? Yes. Well, Frontline Fellowship um, uh, began the Army base when I was doing my military service in the South African Army, South African Defense Force. Uh, we were on the board of Southwest Africa and Angola fighting against Cubans um, and other communist forces that were threatening um, uh, Southwest Africa, which was a South African uh, protectorate. and. Uh, I had a prayer group that met every night for Bible study and prayer throughout our two years in the military. We had all-night prayer meetings on occasions. We uh, did a lot of outreaches. We had the privilege of uh, not only leading many of the pagans and nominal Christians in our own unit to Christ, but even leading some of the captured enemy, communist terrorists to Christ, uh, many of the civilians caught in the crossfire. We also got to see the tremendous needs in conflict areas. And, and often in Africa, people will see the man in camouflage carrying a machine gun as a problem to be avoided, not as a man for whom Christ died and who needs the gospel. And we're convinced that um, soldiers need the gospel and that war zones make really effective mission fields. Uh, the one thing that I think is the biggest threat to the gospel is apathy. And apathy 
breeds in peace and tranquility and prosperity more. But in conflict areas, people are very alert to eternal matters and they're more responsive to the gospel. We've had wonderful responses to the gospel in the conflict areas. And uh, uh, we saw, of course, that you could get into these areas. We got in there soldiers, but there were no missionaries there. Thousands of soldiers, tens of thousands of soldiers. Gee, there were Russians, Cubans, East mm -hmm. Germans, there were uh, North Koreans, there were South Africans. All the missionaries were evangelizing everybody else, but not this whole group of soldiers. In other right. Yeah. So we felt, well, the Great Commission doesn't tell you to go into all the world where it's legal, peaceful, or uh, allowed. Um, the Great Commission doesn't stop at the barbed wire fence or the minefield uh, or the Iron Curtain. So um, this really began to grip our minds, um, and it grew out of our um, prayer fellowships and our, our late-night prayer meetings, just as we felt convicted to pray for our enemies and to pray for the people being persecuted at their hands. But then we were challenged to put feet to our faith. Um, so the name Frontline Fellowship grew out of, first of all, the states surrounding South Africa, Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique were called the frontline states. They called themselves the frontline states. They were in the frontline of battle against South Africa. We <coughs> were in the frontline of battle against them as South African soldiers. The name Frontline Fellowship really just came, I th I'm sure it was uh, inspiration from the Lord, uh, that we would be a fellowship of people who'd been in the frontline, ministering into the frontline states, seeking to um, bring the gospel to soldiers and those caught in the crossfire and those um, who are being persecuted. So that's really where it started. And yes, virtually all of our field staff are ex-soldiers. They've been in the military. We've got people, uh, almost all have been in the South African military. Um, and uh, some uh, have uh, come from American backgrounds. One of our people uh, was in uh, the American Air Force, um, cruise missile launch officer who got his job signed away uh, uh, by President Bush. And so he joined us. And for the last five years, he's been launching Bibles into Angola. You're and not going to uh, sign him away anytime so soon, are no, you? No, no. Okay. His job's secure with us. Okay. So, so that's really our, our background. We've got um, some Americans with us, um, increasing number of Americans, mostly South Africans, one Swiss person. We've had a couple of Brits in the past. It's, it's an international mission, but it's a South African-based um, indigenous African mission. As Mark mentioned, uh, Miriam Kane is with us. Uh, what, what role does she play as, as one of your trusted co-workers? Well, let's Miriam answer some of that, but she's been one of our best um, uh, workers because Miriam's a nurse and uh, uh, she was brought up in a missionary family. Miriam's parents have been missionaries to uh, Mozambique. They were there for 10 years. She was brought up in Mozambique before the communists took over and was there in the transition time. Uh, and um, because of Miriam's me medical background, we've used her uh, to help actually train and get the medical corps of the um, Sudanese rebels, the Christian rebels in southern Sudan, trained and, and up and started. So uh, her work's been uh, key in helping us there, and especially behind the scenes in the office. Miriam, how would you add uh, to well, what you've got to do with? Well, actually just to come back to why our guys are from the military. You have to understand that anybody older than myself had to, any guy had two years of conscription. So naturally, if you're getting any man from South Africa, he's going to have been through the military. Also, you must look at the terrain that we're working in. Uh, we're working out in the deep bush. The discipline, the self-initiative, the um, self-discipline, the perseverance that the guys get in the military are all characteristics in the survival techniques that are really helpful out there. So it's not that we go out to recruit soldiers but they're kind of useful. Yes, it's, it's not a requirement, but um, a large part of what missionary work is all about is danger, discomfort, long distances from home, disappointments. <laughs> it's all part of the job Just description. Just going in to get another D there, that was the four of them. Well, I mean, you can see I've got a Baptist background and <laughs> literature is part of that. A lot of times when you think of a, a missionary, you think of what you saw in the foyer of the, the church, where this is a missionary to a particular village in a particular country and they describe their ministry as one of trying to encourage the local people to come to their uh, little presentation you know once a week on Sunday or something you not only go out into rural areas but you go out into rural areas and you've expanded your um, uh, ministry into a number of different you're no longer on the border states and these these frontline states you've gone into Sudan and Zaire you're well into the heart of Africa how do you see yourself as a missionary maybe different than what the common conception of a missionary mm -hmm. and what missionaries 
are there missionaries you model yourself after or that you particularly admire and, and, and seek to emulate? Yes, I, I'm certainly very inspired uh, by David Livingston first, first and foremost. He's a missionary pioneer. What David Livingston did was he explored and opened the way for, uh, for the hinterland of Africa for others to follow into and, and through his writings, through his uh, explorations and uh, his pioneering work, he opened up Africa for uh, many hundreds, in fact later thousands of missionaries to come in and to um, also bring an end to the Islamic slave trade. Um, now, David Livingston had an itinerant missionary uh, model. Um, I'm also very inspired, though, by uh, the William Carey model, where he didn't only go in and uh, minister to the people and bring them the gospel of Christ through literature and through preaching, but he sought to fight against uh, evils that he saw there. He modeled the gospel by showing that infanticide is wrong, child sacrifice is wrong, uh, slavery, child slavery is wrong. Burning of widows, sati, is wrong, and it needs to be not only outlawed, but uh, written into law to protect people from this. And his heritage um, that William Carey left is uh, not just a few converts, but Bibles in the language of the local people, laws protecting them from, from paganism and, and heathenism, and colleges continuing on the tradition of, of, um, of biblical education. So um, I'd say that the verse that inspires me the most over and over is the Great Commission. We're not only to go, but we're to make disciples of all nations. We're to teach obedience to everything that the Lord has commanded. And um, our goal is nothing less than reformation and revival in Africa. We want to see Africa transformed. Africa needs to be saved. Not only um, we don't just need people to be saved from eternal punishment. We need them to be saved from heathenism today. <coughs> Islam in the north, witchcraft in the center, communism in the south. Um, syncretism, the mixing of Christianity with uh, other religions, all of these need to be eradicated and rooted out. A thoroughly comprehensive Christian um, basis for all areas of life need to be taught. So the Great Commission lays this out. All authority has been given unto Christ. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of all areas of life. There's not one square inch of this world that is not under the Lordship of Christ. And uh, we are wanting to apply the principles that Chalcedon has been publishing, what Dr. Rashduni has been teaching. Uh, we want to take the principles of the Reformed faith into Africa and we convince this is what they need. We've got a lot of evangelism in Africa, many converts, but not enough discipleship. And this is where our mission, I think, can make the biggest impact. We're em emphasizing literature, leadership training, love and action. We're seeking to make long-term uh, changes by investing in a few people in the leadership training and disseminating vast amounts of literature. And, um, so I'd, I'd say William Carey and David Livingston are the two missionaries that inspire me the most. Would it be fair to say that you are something of a cross between David Livingston and Indiana Jones? <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Maybe other people would. Um, is it fair to say that modern evangelicals as a whole, as you see it, do not have this comprehensive approach that, that you've mentioned about applying the faith across the entire spectrum of life, that that has been lost, for example, from the 19th century missionaries into the modern era? Absolutely. I mean, reading uh, the writings of David Livingston, William Carey, and Hudson Taylor, uh, uh, it's quite clear. They went out planning to conquer nations. They saw the prophecies in the scripture that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and that all the kings of the earth will bow down and um, worship the Lord and that um, there will be um, complete eradication of all the false gods and there will only be one Lord worshipped, that the nations will stream to Mount Zion and receive the law uh, from the Lord. Uh, and they believed that the Bible was prophesying that the gospel would triumph throughout the whole world. The Great Commission would be fulfilled. Yeah. And they went out under the full expectation of achieving it. And they did. They did conquer nations. They did bring kings to Christ. And uh, they brought whole tribes and nations to the Lord. This century, we seem to be convinced things are going to get worse and worse and Christians are going to get smaller and smaller and weaker and the Antichrist is going to take everything over and there might be a last-minute Seventh Cavalry rescue by the rapture and this kind of escapist, defeatist, retreatist, mindless um, Christianity seems to, uh, or excuse for it, has taken root. And it doesn't seem to be compatible with a, a genuine missionary zeal, does it? Uh, no, because in fact it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You yeah. expect defeat, you get it. If you expect, yeah. if you, if you expect victory and you work for victory, it's amazing how the Lord rewards such faith. But if we go out in unbelief and we don't expect to get more than a few brands from the fire, then that's, that's probably we'll all we'll get. And Africa has seen this. Africa went from the beginning of this century only 10 million 
uh, uh, Christians in the whole continent to today over 300 million. I mean, Africa has grown tremendously, but I'm afraid it's often miles wide and inches deep. Uh, we need more depth than the last century. There was more depth. And um, today it seems to be except Jesus. The guy can accept Jesus, but he goes to church on Sunday and the witch doctor on Monday. Syncretism. We've got to get people to destroy the idols. Again, the, the book Idols for Destruction has this vital message. We've got to destroy the idols. And we require people to burn their witchcraft charms and make a clear public break with heathenism. Amen. And people are willing to do it, but they so seldom are challenged to. But also on that point, um, if they're going to the witch doctor on Monday, they have needs that need to be met. Many times those are medical needs. They're going because they're sick or their child is sick or there's an accident or something. And unless the Christians are going in there with hospitals um, or going in and teaching about the herbs that they have in that area that they can use or something, um, we're saying, yeah, come and accept Christ, but we're not going to worry about any of your physical needs. And we need to be focusing on those as well. It's what I call a biblical social gospel. Of course, the liberals have set forth a social gospel, which is not theologically sound, and we oppose that. But certainly there's a biblical form of the social gospel, applying the faith in all areas of life, including to people's physical, yes. physical needs. When I first started doing this work, I was going into Mozambique back in 1982. And I was, at that stage, um, pre-millennial, rapture-focused, believing the world was coming to an end any moment. I was... Um, uh, very much an Arminian. I had uh, no real concept of the sovereignty of God. I felt personally responsible for everyone's salvation, um, both positively and negatively. And uh, I did a lot of evangelism, but I didn't do discipleship. Uh, and my motto was, why should anyone hear the gospel twice when someone else hasn't heard it once? Which is a bit of a half-truth, because you can't proclaim the gospel in just one session. It takes a lot more than that. Uh, but nevertheless, what I had was, was a, a very superficial understanding of the Great Commission. I was going out there to make converts. I didn't understand the need to make disciples and teach obedience. But as I saw the burnt out villages, and I walked in what you can only call a killing fields, uh, and came across people whose whole villages had been destroyed, their church had been destroyed, and I saw the church had been targeted for annihilation. And then in speaking to them, I found out they'd been preaching the same kind of superficial gospel I had. Uh, and don't get involved in politics. Don't get involved in anything controversial. All we can do is pray. They haven't resisted the Marxists taking over their country. Now, father had been shipped off to concentration camp. Brother had been taken off uh, to do uh, forced labor in the sugarcane plantations in Cuba. <coughs> Pastors been crucified. The church has been burnt. Their Bibles have been confiscated. What are they to do now? They're completely and utterly without answers. And I realized that, um, that my pietistic evangelicalism didn't have answers for the real issues facing a church in Mozambique that was facing annihilation by a totalitarian antichrist state. And it was my traumatic experience in Mozambique that made me dissatisfied with my understanding of the gospel, forced me back into the Bible, led me into the writings of Calvin, and I um, was grateful for the writings of Francis Schaeffer, getting me to ask a lot of the questions that got me thinking along the lines of the Bible's got the answer. And uh, this led me to, um, later on, uh, uh, productive Christians and age of guilt manipulators of Chilton that really helped me. War Psalms of the Prince of Peace by uh, James Adams uh, really gave me an, a lot of answers too as I realized, yes, um, the Psalms, I must pray the Psalms against yes. evil. And uh, uh, the, the Lord led me more and more into the Psalms and Revelation and seeing the, the uh, victory of Christ of all persecutors. Um, and then, by God's grace, I was linked up with Chalcedon and I, I saw your writings and, and things came into place. It took several years, but I moved uh, to a thoroughly reformed position. I came to see that we're not called to defeat, but victory. We're not waiting for the Antichrist. <laughs> we're serving Christ. We're looking forward to his kingdom triumphing throughout the world. And um, we start to put more emphasis on leadership training, discipleship. We start taking whole Bibles, not just the New Testament. And uh, didn't just hand out tracts, but we um, ran seminars and courses, and we, we start to plan long term. But part of this is when I saw the need for what Miriam was talking about, the love in action. What do we do? Uh, as James says, when mm -hmm. we see a brother who is in mm -hmm. need. When, uh, and so we start to take him some medicines and start taking some clothes and food and love boxes, packs of uh, uh, important foods and salt and soap and things people needed and giving them out showing we cared. And this the Lord blessed so much. And we saw, in fact, as I went back to the missionaries of the last century, I discovered the strategy of missions in the last century was minister to body, mind and spirit. 
The mm. first thing the missionaries tend to open up was a clinic. Next thing they opened up was a school. Third thing they opened up was a church. Because they first had to establish the biblical credentials of love, then they uh, ministered to the mind, and finally they ministered to the soul as people start to come to Christ. They, these days, we go and hold an evangelistic rally and establish a church, and it's a gospel hall. It's not, right. it's not a discipleship center. We're not ministering to body, mind, and spirit these days. So our missions tried now to go back to the last century, 19th century missionary model, body, mind, and spirit. And that's part of the reason why we um, are working like we are. And we also are being itinerant because we're ministering in countries where the gospel is illegal, Muslim and communist countries. You can't stay in one spot easily. You've got to keep mm -hmm. moving. And so we do a bit of a rotation. And we've got to stay unpredictable as far as the governments are concerned or we could curtail our work. So that's probably another reason why our ministry is more um, itinerant in some ways. But we keep coming back to the same areas and we build on previous foundations. That's a criticism a lot of people have of you. You're a lawbreaker. Yes. Well, <laughs> absolutely, it's true. Um, uh, we have to make a big distinction between uh, <coughs> God's law, capital L, and man's law, small l. Uh, when I first started going to Mozambique, I had this problem. People came to me. Romans 13, you've got to obey the government. It's against the law to uh, go into Mozambique with Bibles. It's against the law to be a missionary and to go into Mozambique. It's against the law to have under-18s in church in Mozambique. It's against the law to baptize under-18s. Um, and it's against the law to preach a message in a church in Mozambique unless the government-sponsored church and you're a government-certified uh, um, minister and your sermon's been vetted by the secret police the week before. I mean, in every sense, we were breaking the law of the Marxist state, the Marxist-Leninist government of Mozambique. And now in, Mo in Sudan, we're smuggling Bibles into an Islamic state. The National Islamic Front government forbids Bibles. In fact, since 1964, all missionaries have been forbidden in southern Sudan by law. The Church Missionary Act, uh, not only that, Bibles are forbidden. It's not just the Muslim government that forbids us to take in Bibles. It is, in fact, the... Um, United Nations. They forbid us to take in Bibles. How do we as Christians handle this? And I'd venture to say the average evangelical can't handle it. He doesn't have an understanding of what's the basis for biblical law. And so we've got to go back to the books of by what standard and by this standard. Um, we've got to go back to the fact of the only foundation for law is biblical law. The government doesn't have a blank check. A clear reading of Romans 13 says more to the government than it says to the citizens. The government is to be a minister of God. The government is to be the deacon of God. The government is to be an agent of wrath uh, against evildoers. The government is to commend those who do right. Um, the government isn't to do evil. God didn't give it a blank check to do whatever he wants. And so, bluntly speaking, um, uh, if people want to take Romans 13 and justify it to uh, mean that you've got to obey any government in any sense, they haven't faced the reality of life in, say, Sudan today. If you were in Sudan, and the Sudan, and you had had your pastor crucified, your church burnt, your well poisoned, your crops razed to the ground, your cattle looted and taken away by the government forces. Your children are now being taken away uh, by force to the Kalwa, to the Corona concentration school, where they are going to be taught to be Arabs and to be Muslims, to recite the Islamic uh, creed and to uh, dissociate themselves from, from the Christian faith and later to be brainwashed to fight against their own Christian people for Islam. If that was your experience, at what point would you resist and fight? Now, a person who says you've got to obey the government, they don't believe that. They just mean they've never faced a situation so radical that they've had to face up to the fact that, listen, just like you get false ministers in the church, you get false ministers in government. God has established the authorities, but that doesn't mean that every government is an authority. Some governments are just a power. In fact, there are a bunch of bandits there with no authority whatsoever, because the only law that's valid is law that's in accordance with God's law. But if a man doesn't go back to the Reformed faith and study the scriptures carefully, he can't really answer why, on some cases, you can disobey some laws and others cases you must obey the law. Because to them, the law is whatever man says it is. But I say the law is what God says it is. It's God's law. If man's law and God's law are in conflict, we must obey God rather than man. That's the way we believe. Could you be a little bit more specific? Um, you, you said something about the United Nations forbidding Bibles into southern Sudan. In, in what way have they done that? The United Nations have their largest, their most expensive uh, hum, um, uh, food uh, program in the world 
going on in Sudan. It's called uh, Operation Lifeline Sudan, OLS. So far, it's cost them over two billion US dollars. That's billion with a B. Um, two billion dollars, and some of people are dying of starvation at the same rate now as they were before the UN stepped in. And one can't exactly work out what the United Nations has been doing there for the last 10 years. Well, they probably don't know either. Because they certainly haven't improved the situation, but they built up a bloated bureaucracy that one thing they're doing is they're actually feeding the government garrisons in the besieged towns. So they're basically prolonging the war by uh, feeding the Arab troops besieged in the south and therefore enabling them to hold out for so much longer. Uh, but that's another matter. What the United Nations is doing there is they're interfering with something that I'm sure they've got no mandate to do. And they say, well, we're just enforcing the law of the government of Sudan. No Bible in Sudan. But that's not actually correct because on the same OLS flights, United Nations flights, they're carrying in beer and wine for the UN workers inside Sudan, which is also in uh, breach of the Islamic law, the Sharia law of the government of Sudan. So they're being selective. They'll say, no, we're enforcing the law, no Bibles. But they're breaking the law when it comes to alcohol. Um, on another line, they may say, well, we, we can't allow religious books to be carried in. But they've allowed Qurans to be transported, and they plan their planes going to Wau and Juba, government garrison towns besieged. So they, they're totally inconsistent. To show you how petty these United Nations officials are, they actually have forbidden um, all flights for a Christian relief agency. Um, the largest Christian relief agency working to southern Sudan is Across, a British-based group. And they forbade Across to fly any relief aid for a month into Sudan because one of their people on one of their flights had been found to have some Bibles in his possession. And the pettiness of these people was to forbid the largest relief agency there no flights for a month. I mean, this means thousands, tens of thousands of people dependent for survival on the aid these people flying in was just curtailed for a month arbitrarily for no other reason than that the UN hated Bibles. In fact, I just recently saw a written um, uh, item off the internet uh, from the United Nations OLS where they stated if they knew of a humanitarian relief agency, their words, flying into Sudan without authorization they would notify the government of Sudan to intercept that flight. I mean, written, they've stated this as, as their policy. Um, and we believe that they have done just that on our people. One of our teams was hit by helicopter gunships um, as they landed in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan, and these gunships rocketed, strafed and bombed them, uh, killed civilians in, in the presence of our people as they were delivering Bibles and relief aid to the beleaguered Christians in Nuba Mountains. And uh, MiG jets were scrambled to try and shoot down a flight that I was on once as well. We had to take evasive action through a neighboring country to uh, avoid this. And we believe on both occasions that the United Nations probably notified the government of our flights, somehow found out about it and, and uh, tried to um, get us intercepted. So uh, it's a very serious matter what the UN is trying to do in forbidding Bibles. Peter, we want to get on to some of your um, other aspects of your ministry, but could you give us a synopsis of your ministry in Sudan, why you're there, what's going on with the government and the Christians? Uh, we know there's a long warfare going on there, and you've been sneaking in Bibles and, and ministering there, because um, this is a real hot spot. Could you kind of summarize mm -hmm. what's going on there and what the current status is? Yes, uh, Sudan's the largest country in Africa, and it's in the grip of the longest war of the century. Since 1955, the Muslim Arab North has been attacking the Christian Black South and the um, Christians in the Nuba Mountains, which is in central Sudan, a little island of Christianity and a sea of Islam. And these Christians in the Nuba Mountains, southern Sudan, are suffering the very worst persecution in the world today. Uh, most of the villages in the Nuba Mountains have been burnt to the ground. Most of the church have been destroyed. Most of the pastors have been killed. Most of their crops have been destroyed. Most of their livestock has been uh, looted. Um, uh, people have literally been crucified. Hundreds of men have been crucified in the Nuba Mountains. Children are being led away as slaves by the tens of thousands. There's been a kidnapping of children and forcing them to become Muslims. Uh, so we're talking about a very intense, serious, systematic uh, campaign of scorched earth and of, um, in effect, genocide. They're trying to wipe out Christianity in Sudan. Sudan is run by a fundamentalist, radical Muslim government called the National Islamic Front uh, and uh, under General al-Bashir. Uh, these people are uh, so radical, they're even using uh, chemical warfare uh, such as gas, uh, mustard gas and, and uh, at least, um, so much so that we even have to equip our missionaries now with gas masks that are going to Sudan. And uh, uh, in, in Sudan, we work on three levels. 
literature distribution. We've smuggled in over, uh, over 90,000 Bibles and Christian books already into Sudan in 21 languages over the last three years. Uh, that breaks down to about 54,000 Bibles and 13,000 hymn books and 9,000 uh, prayer books and catechisms and then lots more other books, uh, including Chalcedon books, which we've taken in for libraries. So the uh, literature is the one side, and we don't just deliver it, we distribute it right down to the local congregation, across the rivers into uh, a forward unit uh, and so on. Leadership training, we've uh, trained a whole uh, range of leaders. Um, the one is the medical people. We found no medics at all, uh, no hospitals functioning when we started in the, in the whole areas we were working. So um, uh, Miriam and I worked on training a core of medical people uh, in first aid, basic uh, ble breathing, bleeding, breakages and burns, uh, in disease infection control. And uh, uh, these medics uh, formed the beginning of a medical core in Southern Sudan. We established or repaired three clinics, uh, brought in um, another relief agency to start a hospital. We've taken a four-wheel drive ambulance. So uh, that's what's been done on, on the uh, love and action side there. Uh, medical, taken in a, a lot of um, relief aid on that side seed and, and agricultural materials too. Um, then we've trained teachers, uh, run biblical worldview seminars for teachers. Uh, we've run reformation and revival seminars for chaplains. And uh, there were no chaplains there when we started, but now there are 36 chaplains and chaplain assistants working. Are these indigenous peoples? Yes. Um, Sudanese black Christians amongst the Sudanese People's Liberation Army. So the SPLA chaplains now recognized by their high command and having full authority to preach the word uh, and in compulsory church services amongst the troops. All troops of all ranks must attend the chaplain services uh, several times a week. Uh, and uh, we've seen it um, from the, I've met up to the second in command of the SPLA and they take their hats off and they pray with the men and uh, they've mm. even said all of our victories date back to the time when frontline fellowship started to bring Bibles, when we appointed chaplains and when prayers were said, God is blessing us with victory. And in fact, um, that's been our observation. Uh, God really has been blessing them in the last two years uh, tremendously. Um, we've done a lot of evangelism. Uh, Frontline Fellowship's done at least a thousand church services and meetings inside Sudan in the last three years. Uh, a lot of seminars, pastors, training courses, and so on. Um, so we work on the three L's, literature, leadership training, love and action, um, throughout Southern and Central Sudan. Do you expect that the Southern Sudanese will be independent as a Christian or Christian-influenced nation before too long? You spoke I of victory. So. I really believe so. I wouldn't have said this a year ago, but um, uh, there's been such dramatic uh, reversal of fortunes, and the South Sudanese are no longer just fighting for survival, which they were when we started. But God has answered the prayers of Christians all over the world who've started to focus on him. And uh, now there's a chance they really could be fighting for, for liberation. And Southern Sudan, I think must go independent. They must redraw the map. Good borders make good neighbors in this case. Uh, the Muslim Arab North has nothing in common with the Christian Black South. And they have a great history, I mean, a great Christian heritage in the they South. They do, absolutely. Yeah. So Southern Sudan, uh, I think, will succeed militarily to, um, to achieve independence, and they will redraw the map. And I, I presume somewhere along the line, they'll declare independence. And I hope that there'll be friends in America to push for your government to recognize the independence in Southern Sudan. Yeah. After all, Eritrea, Croatia, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, they managed to redraw the map and have their independence recognized. Why not Southern Sudan? Um, so I do believe that. However, it'll be a lot tougher battle for the Nuba Mountains. The Christians who are behind the lines, the Arabic-speaking Christians in the center of Sudan, uh, I can't see the government of Sudan allowing them to go free. Uh, that will be a pretty long ongoing war of survival, but the first step is Southern Sudan to be free. The next step would be to see if we can get the Nuba Mountains to have uh, some form of recognized independence as well. That would be a much harder battle, but this is no longer impossible. It's, it's feasible, and we've even been asked by uh, commissioners and governors in the South to please provide suggestions on a future Christian constitution of Southern Sudan, and we are starting to uh, submit these, and we've, we've even started running God and government seminars for some of the civil authorities to lay down biblical principles of checks and balances and, and separation of powers for um, when they could achieve their independence. And we really believe for the next two years, one could see this uh, come, come about. How much impact has the gospel had on the peoples in these parts of Sudan? Are people nominally Christian or do you, do you see evidence of real faith um, expressing itself in their culture? 
I see evidence of real faith. Um, th there's different ways. Uh, one thing is you don't really have to worry about locking up your goods. Uh, things are safe. Um, uh, you can, uh, in fact, we even did this uh, because somebody said you could do it. I dropped my wallet uh, arbitrarily through the window near the marketplace as I was driving out for the day. And the next day, uh, someone came and brought it back and said, uh, somebody found this and is this yours? Um, and literally, um, the honesty is renowned of some parts where the gospel's really been strong, like the model people the way I was talking about now. Um, we have seen, um, uh, in a war situation, it's extraordinary to have men in arms, barefoot and tattered, walking down uh, the road and not using their weapons to extort something out of the local people. First of all, we've seen the soldiers are as thin as the local population. Secondly, we've seen that the soldiers are as tattered as the local population. They, they don't have the best of everything. And we've never, with all of our driving around their motorbikes, cars, bicycles, ever had someone try to use force or intimidate us into giving them either a lift or giving us them the vehicle. It's that in a war situation uh, in Africa is, is uh, testimony really that the Gospels had an impact for sure. Nelson Mandela was recently here in the United States to and spoke to great accolades our Congress. Um, your headquarters is in South Africa, um, and uh, you do a lot of work there. Would you tell us, Peter, what's what's going on there on the South African front and what, what Frontline is doing? Yes, well, Frontline Fellowship is a South African-based mission. We're an indigenous South African mission, and our headquarters in Cape Town, and the Parliament's just down the road, and uh, we've uh, felt forced to speak to a lot of the social issues in South Africa. Um, a lot of the social evils, a lot of the corruptions and wickedness in government. And um, our vision is Reformation Revival in South Africa. So we are networked together with um, groups uh, like United Christian Action, um, which is a, a broad coalition, an umbrella group for about 20 different Bible-based groups, all concerned for Reformation and Revival in South Africa. We've cooperated with a group of alliances like the National Alliance for Life, actually helped bring it about. and. Uh, uh, groups like the Christian Voice, uh, which have marched to Parliament protesting against attempts to legalize abortion or pornography or uh, to introduce a secular state, uh, removing references to Almighty God from our Constitution. Uh, and even recently, when they tried to close down all Christian radio stations in South Africa, Nelson Mandela's latest, uh, we marched to Parliament, 20,000 strong, to protest that. Um, in South Africa, we spend most of our time with Christian radio programs teaching biblical principles for all areas of life, economics, education, entertainment, uh, and so on. And um, deputations to government. Miriam's done a lot of deputations on the pro-life issue, trying to stop the legalization of abortion in our country. Um, we've um, uh, been very involved also in South Africa in trying to um, speak out against the evils and give Christian alternatives. So we've run biblical worldview seminars and Christian culture conferences in South Africa to try and give um, alternative. And we do this because our missionary base is South Africa, our missionary sending base, um, where the Bibles often are printed, where the gospel radio broadcasts go from, where our people, most of our staff come from. And if our country is taken over by paganism, this is going to dramatically affect the missionary work across the border, obviously. Um, so we are committed to fighting in South Africa against evil. and. Uh, you know, Nelson Mandela's government gets tremendous accolades in, in America, but I don't know why. I heard Newt Gingrich and others were praising him as a modern George Washington. <laughs> well, that is laughably ridiculous. Um, your George Washington was a God-fearing Christian uh, with a biblical worldview. Uh, Nelson Mandela is a pagan, humanist, evolutionist, atheist, who is uh, completely committed to a pagan philosophy. For example, just to give you a couple of facts, He's the one who's pushed through the legalization of abortion, pornography, uh, homosexuality, trying to get the Bible out of schools, trying to close down Christian radio stations. Uh, the, the man is a complete and utter reprobate in every sense uh, of the word, uh, <coughs> seen by uh, the incredible explosion of crime and corruption in our country. And a documented terrorist, actually. Yes, he's a lawyer like your president, and uh, he pleaded guilty to 156 acts of violence, public bombings. He was the founder of Mkuntu Wisiswi, the terrorist wing of the ANC, trained by Algerian and uh, Cuban um, secret police. And this man pleaded guilty in a court of law to 156 bombings. Now, I mean, this man is no George Washington. He's uh, a murderer. In fact, his government has released the terrorists convicted in the court of law of the St. James Church attack 
uh, a church where uh, 11 people were murdered and 55 uh, crippled and injured by these terrorists who burst into churches without any warning, hurtled hand grenades into the midst of people and opened fire with machine guns. These people have now been set free by our government, by Nelson Mandela. He also set free the uh, murderers who stabbed the American Fulbright scholar Amy Beale 80 times. They've been just set free on, uh, on, under his amnesty. And for his birthday, his 80th birthday, he set free um, a whole lot of murderers and criminals who within a week were raping and murdering individuals. Uh, and going back into prison. So that's his birthday present to our country. I, I think Americans should just pay attention to who his friends are. His friends are Yasser Arafat, Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, Fidel Castro. They've been the ones welcomed and given accolades in South Africa. He hates America. He hates everything you stand for. He curses and despises you. And then when he comes to America with his begging bowl, he gets a congressional medal uh, for uh, being an enemy of everything America stands for. I. I really question the sanity of leaders in America when they can welcome such a avowed enemy of the gospel of Christ and enemy of your country. I question the sanity most of the time, but uh, yes. that's what a lot of people have the idea that South Africa is the most Christian country in in the world, and they would ask, "Why do you need to reform South Africa?" They think it's a Christian, basically a, a strong, got a, it's got a strong Christian base. Mm -hmm. All right, since the uh, revolution, it's the politics, um, they, may, they may have a problem with that and recognize that the, the fact that there's a different element running the country, but they think at, at heart there's a strong Christian base there. So they would say, why do you need to work in your own country? Well, South Africa, in fact, has a wonderful Christian heritage. Um, uh, it, it was founded by Dutch reformed settlers, uh, French Huguenots fleeing persecution, France came there for religious liberty. And for example, just to go back uh, to when I was being brought up, uh, I mean, Rhodesia, uh, I was first brought up in Rhodesia, but I, when I came back to South Africa, um, all the cinemas were closed every Sunday in honor of the Sabbath, uh, so, was, so were the shops closed um, on Sundays. Uh, the Lord's Day was honored by law. Um, in our schools, in fact, most of our schools to this day, it's still true, but all of our schools in the past um, were begun every day in Bible reading and prayer and hymn singing, uh, Christian hymns, prayers in the name of Christ. Bible education is, even now, still in most of our schools, but they're trying to get it out. The Bible education curriculum in many South African schools actually has written in the curriculum, this curriculum is designed to bring every student a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. A lot of our schooling is actually very Christian, even the government schools, although obviously they're trying to reverse that right now very, very forcefully. Um, pornography was banned until um, uh, recently. Uh, abortion has been banned until recently. Uh, the legalization uh, came formally in on the 1st of February last year uh, by Nelson Mandela's personal intervention and by forcing it through as a party vote that nobody could even vote according to their conscience. His parliamentarians had to vote for it or lose their jobs. I mean, that's how uh, determined Mandela was to push through abortion. So South Africa did have a, a Christian heritage. For example, when I went into the South African army, um, Bibles were issued to every troop by the army. I mean, Bibles were part of your kit, just part of your, um, part of your inspection. It had to be there with you at all times, or you were not properly equipped. Um, devotions were enforced. You, quiet times were enforced in your training. Chaplain services were compulsory. Uh, blasphemy was seriously uh, punished uh, by the South African military. Uh, in fact, I know of officers who uh, literally lost their rank uh, over a blasphemy that, that was um, uh, prosecuted. So the South African military had a very strong uh, Christian foundation. For example, tithing was enforced. They literally took uh, your tithes and, and it didn't go um, uh, to the military or to the chaplaincy. It went to Bible production through the Bible Society. The South African army funded more Bible translations and Bible purchases than any other institutional mission in the country. Um, the South African army was distributing hundreds of thousands of Bibles a year, funded by the tithes of its troops. So there was a lot of Christian heritage in the country, but the trouble is our people sat back. The government does what's right. The government bans what's wrong. If it's legal, it must be right. And this kind of Unfortunately, I let a lot of people take this for granted, including myself. I did not understand the importance of the Lord's Day, of our Christian holidays, or of all this. And only when it was taken away, and the new government has come in and reversed things, have I seen the devastating impact and why we needed those laws, and how good we had it in the past. 
Um, but unfortunately, what, it's, what it has led to is many South Africans aren't fighting evil. They believe that, well, if it's legal, it must be right. And so we need a tremendous revival of the fear of the Lord and uh, teaching of the Word of God to get back to our Christian heritage. But the foundation's there. Last summer, uh, Chalcedon sent a, a team of men to, uh, to Zambia, the only officially Christian nation on the planet, as, as far as we know. Mm. Peter, give us a background of the remarkable transformation that has occurred there and give us a little historical perspective mm. on what's happened there and also what you're doing in Zambia and some special plans that you have for Zambia. Wow, yes, that's a lot. But um, Zambia, um, the first missionary to Zambia was David Livingston. He walked across the length and breadth of Zambia a few times. And uh, in fact, he's buried in Zambia, or his heart is buried in Zambia. His body was embalmed and taken off to, um, uh, to uh, England, where it is in, in the cathedral. Uh, but uh, Zambia uh, was at one time Northern Rhodesia. It was uh, one of the most prosperous and uh, promising countries in Central Africa. The British left it with something ridiculous like two billion pounds uh, in the treasury <laughs> at independence. But within just a few years, Kenneth Kahunda, a socialist dictator, Marxist, uh, with alliances with the Soviet Union, um, turned Zambia into a total and utter basket case. They wrecked this country, which was a model country. And unfortunately, in 26 years of a one-party dictatorship, uh, Kenneth Kahunda had ruined that country, devastated it. And it, it was a laughing stock, an economic basket case. Um, you couldn't exaggerate uh, the uh, destruction of everything from initiative to the economy, the infrastructure, the roads potholed, everything ruined, not a lift working, an elevator anywhere in the city working. Everything was just a mess. Um, I was uh, first um, going into Zambia as a missionary back in 1987, and I was locked up within literally hours of crossing the border uh, for the crime of smuggling Bibles across them into neighboring Mozambique. And uh, I ended up in their prison and uh, all kinds of abuse and experiences there and saw Zambian justice firsthand when I saw that most of the people in the prison had never even been to trial. Some had been waiting eight years to get to trial and there they were in the prisons. Um, so I saw the tremendous injustice and evil. What I didn't realize was some of the next government of Zambia were in our cells. General Godfrey Miandu became the vice president of Zambia, uh, was in our cell. Uh, the, present, uh, the present president of Zambia was then locked up a few cells down the way. I didn't specifically meet him then, but he was in the same prison at the same time. Um, uh, and that was Frederick Chaluba. Uh, and little did I know that God would turn this communist nation uh, of Zambia, this country that used to send out terrorists and that sent bombers and hatred and Marxism out to its neighboring states, causing the deaths and, and injuries of, of hundreds of thousands of people ultimately, uh, that God would turn this nation around. And now they've got a president who was elected by um, the first multi-party uh, free elections in Zamb Zambia's history, 1991. In fact, the elections were held on 31st of October, Reformation Day, hmm. which is wonderful um, how the Lord uh, started a Reformation in Zambia on the anniversary of when Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses up. So Zambia's in the middle of a tremendous revival uh, right now of um, coming out of a Marxist and occultic background uh, into uh, the gospel. But of course, the challenge is enormous. The devastation is great. The president's a Christian. Some of his cabinet ministers are Christians. Uh, he's uh, made commitments. The schools are open to the gospel. But the textbooks are still humanist, secular, evolutionary textbooks. I mean, we've got to change the textbooks. Uh, the museums still have 16 billion years ago evolutionary nonsense. We've got to change the museums. But the gospel's on the radio, the gospel's on TV. Uh, uh, the um, schools are um, um, opening in prayer and having evangelism. We get into the schools as much as we want. They're offering schools to any missionary who wants. Run our schools, our schools. Give you the people, give you the buildings. I mean, Zambia knows they're in a mess, and they're trying to get out of it. But unfortunately, good intentions won't be enough. We need to have a permanent mission station help these people with reformation and revival. So, so far, we're doing a lot of evangelistic courses, a lot of leadership training courses. At the moment, our field director, Robert, is uh, traveling throughout Zambia, running 18 different biblical worldview seminars in different towns and centers of Zambia. We're aiming to put a Bible college in Zambia um, early next year and to help uh, further making it a literature depot to get more of the Reformation materials out throughout the country. But um, seriously, the challenge in Zambia is there. We need teachers, 
we need missionaries, we need people to help them even re, uh, not only restructure their um, curriculum, their textbooks, but even their museums. Um, Zambia is wide open, uh, but it's a window of opportunity. We need to take advantage right now. As we conclude, Peter, what would you say to those listening to this tape, American Christians committed to the faith about Africa and its potential and its, um, its future and what they can do to be involved? I believe Africa's got the greatest potential for Reformation revival. Although it's the most politically unstable continent with the most amount of wars, we've got about 15 or 16 wars going on right now, 49 dictatorships. I mean, Africa is a mess in many different ways, but the hunger for the gospel, the openness for the gospel is great. And bad times are good for spiritual ministry. The people are open. Apathy is at a low level. <laughs> um, uh, spiritual hunger is at a high level. So um, although Africa is primitive and poor and uh, in many times in chaos, yet um, what we can achieve there is great. In any village, you can go with next to no warning and have a big turnout at a meeting, a crusade, a seminar. You can have pastors turn out to a conference without much effort. It's it's a tremendously. To what do you attribute area. that recep that that willingness uh, to, to yeah? What do you attribute that to? Well, for one thing, they're not saturated by media like you are here. Um, uh, forget about satellite TV and all the rest of it. Uh, they often only have one channel TV for a couple of hours a day, and it's nonsense anyway, and it's not much temptation to waste your time on. Uh, they're not saturated by the amount of one radio station in the country. Uh, Usually government-operated, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so the people are uh, hungry for literature and are hungry for, for training and education. That's part of it. I don't know if, Miriam, you'd, you'd add any other things about um, hunger in Africa or what we could attribute it to. I think, too, people have come out of, well, particularly in Zambia, 27 years of socialism. They've seen it doesn't work, and they're looking for something else. And the gospel fills that need in their lives. They've come out of witchcraft. They've tried witchcraft. They know it doesn't work. Here in the West, people um, are prosperous. They don't need God. They're complacent. And therefore, they don't see that they can dampen down that, that need for God within themselves. In Africa, every day is a struggle to live. And therefore, they do recognize that they need somebody outside of themselves who will um, be their protector, be their lord, be their master. You know. I want to mention before we close that if you would like to support Frontline Fellowship, you can send checks to Cal Seed and designate them Frontline Fellowship, and we'll make sure that, that all of the money gets to Peter Hammond and his work. Yes, we um, are attempting right now to help Peter establish a permanent mission base in Zambia for his work and uh, education, agricultural training, leadership training, and the like. And if you'd like, uh, to do that, send it in and designate it to Frontline Fellowship or use the name Peter Hammond and we'll make sure it gets there. Thank you all for listening and God bless. <laughs>